It's time now for super psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell, and your golden years. Good evening, and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. This evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And today is Sunday, October 1st, 2023, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live with another great program. And Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this show, is here with us to make it run smoothly, as usual, of course. And in a little while after the break, we'll be joined from Hawaii by returning guest Carol Polkavar. Carol is an adjunct professor at our Hawaii Pacific University. She's a playwright, poet, director, producer, and teacher of American history, civil law, and writing. And this time around, Carol joins us to discuss her first book her historic, in her historical mystery series, A Murder on Allen Street, and more about her new creative projects. And then later in the program, I will continue talking about living with passion while advocating for our elders in the healthcare system in spite of some age discrimination that still exists there. And after the program, you can hear this evening's show again by going to my website, and the link to the podcast will be posted later tonight along with any website links that we discuss on the program. And you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends by going directly to blogtalkradio.com slash yourgoldenyears, and you can also listen on Apple Podcasts. For information from prior shows and to listen to all of our previous programs on Blog Talk Radio, go to my website, drmaricarpell.com. You can also hear them directly on blogtalkradio.com slash yourgoldenears. And all of those podcasts are now on Apple Podcasts as well. And if you want to find out what's coming up in on the program and any other events, Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. This evening's program is produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. And we're going to take a brief break. Um, it'll be very brief, so don't go anywhere because when we come back, we'll be joined by Carol Polkovar right here. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed services or supplies you never received. There are three easy things you can do to prevent fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy. Protect your personal information and look for any suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or call your local Medicare SHIP program at 1-800-252-5222. 
Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And now joining us on the phone all the way from beautiful Hawaii <laughs> is Carol Polkabar. Welcome, Carol. Hello. So nice to be here. And there. Yeah. Al- <laughs> Aloha. <laughs> How is everything in Hawaii? Well, the weather is always beautiful, and Mm -hmm. um, going from New York to Hawaii is an interesting adjustment. I would imagine. (laughs) Yeah, um, and I should note that I am now retired from from teaching and um, extraordinarily busy. I well, don't quite understand how that all happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be busy now with doing the things that you love, right? Right. But um, I cheated. I did the things I loved all my life. <laughs> and um, not that I didn't make mistakes, but you can look back and say, yeah, that's nice. Uh-huh. Yeah, so very my, lucky. Very lucky. <laughs> my my new enterprise cuz I had this fantasy that when I got to Hawaii, I was going to be in a place where I could go to the pool and I would relax all day, swim and then go inside and write a novel. Well, I got to write the novels part. Okay. But um I got busy writing a couple of things for theater here, and then I got (laughs) busy uh, working with a filmmaker here. So, uh, yeah, very active. Wow. That's great. That's great. So, and, and, yeah. No, go on. Go on. Oh, I was going to say that the book is a series, so... I got caught up in it, and I'm I'm living part of my life in the 19th century, which so, isn't that so, much better than now. <laughs> so tell us about this series and how you, maybe a little bit about your history and how you got caught up in writing a series, a historical history, murder mystery series. Yeah, well, I started with murder mystery because in my imagination, I thought that would be relatively easy to write. I was wrong. Mm. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I I was curious about the process. Um, I was a history teacher, and uh, my wife is also has a Ph.D. in Columbia in history, so history is often a subject. And her uh, we we both kind of fell in love with the 19th century because it's mm-hmm. such a watershed for everything that exists today. Um, and life began changing, and we don't think about it very much. But once upon a time, nobody had anything waking them up in the morning because they didn't have to get up except at dawn to uh, deal with the farming. 
once we got industrialized, everything changed. And uh, Hmm. we're still trying to figure all that out. Um, The the book um, engages us on a lot of different levels. Um, The protagonist who will go through the series is, at this point, only 16. She's illiterate in English. She works in a factory. And she comes from a home in uh, Russia in a small Jewish community. Uh, And um, when her father dies, she is an orphan in New York. So it has a little bit of that Alice in Wonderland, somebody learning about where they are Mm -hmm. and how it works. So this takes place in New York. Yes, it takes place in New York which was a marvelous place at the time in terms of characters. It was Uh just getting itself together, and there was room for a lot of thievery, which happened, Um, and, of course, a very rich, very, very poor. And um, so there were characters that appear in my book because I love them so much. One had the role of the godfather. She, and I said she, organized all the crime in New York City. And Hmm. uh, she was there for quite a while. She um, was a German-Jewish woman from um, the Lower East Side. Ostensibly, she had a dry goods store. She had four children, and she arranged bank robberies and the uh, stealing of cloth, which was a big uh, moneymaker mm-hmm. in the age when New York was uh, doing clothing and starting that industrialization of factory. And so is this based <laughs> on a, a real historical character? No, she's a, she's a conglomerate. Of okay. Everything I, I I know about that era, and of course she she works in a factory, but she has a good job. She's in Mrs. Altman's factory, which is a factory that happens in where she lives. So it's a small group. It's not yet mass factory. And she works mm-hmm. for. She comes to work for later when her life changes. Um, for my other two favorite characters. Hummel and Howe, and they were lawyers, and they were the best criminal lawyers ever. They said of 23 people in jail waiting trial for crimes, only two of them didn't have uh, Hummel and Howe as lawyers, and they were very um, dramatic, and Howe went in the courtroom, and he was dressed in silks and lavender and diamond rings, and he was not shy of using any means. Eventually they said maybe bribery, too, to win uh-huh. his case. And uh-huh. they won. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there are a lot of really colorful a, characters. Yeah, uh, it, yes. Uh, I suppose they're more colorful looking back than than at the time, but I can't help feeling simpatico with them. 
And what happens to this young girl is a friend of hers, a factory girl, gets murdered and she's pregnant. And this kind of crime was not unusual in that period. And no one really was interested in finding out who did it. And this girl, Rivka, goes to find out. And in her journey to finding out, she finds America and begins to be herself. So it's really Mm -hmm. a kind of coming of age story. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your characters are colorful, but, uh, you know, from what I've seen um, in documentaries and even, you know, historical mm-hmm. fiction movies about New York at that time, it was a very colorful place with all kinds of people from all over the world. Right. And the people from all over the world were really... Um, I, I, taken advantage of and exposed mm-hmm. to the same xenophobia we have today. So one of the things that was very interesting about this time is that in many ways it mirrors our time. There's a mm-hmm. big change and um, there's um, the problem of people coming in who are not like the people who were there already. And people don't realize You know, we look now at uh, immigrants coming from the South and have a whole list of problems with those people. But the irony is the people who are looking that way, their heritage is really the same. I mean, the Irish, all the Irish, they were so badly uh, discriminated against. In Mm -hmm. every way. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they get established, there's a wonderful uh, cartoon that has a a line of immigrants coming in and behind them, and and the Americans trying to keep them out, and behind the Americans trying to keep them out is the shadow of the country they themselves came from. Mm -hmm. So that, Mm -hmm. that, that is... And uh, there was even uh, competition between uh, immigrants from different places. Uh, And, of course, there was uh, racism. So uh, these are subjects that that I I touch on. Oh, (laughs) yeah, I try to get – see, usually when you learn history, you learn the big things that happen. But the smaller stories make up history. Mm-hmm. When, when I taught history, I told my class, you are history. What you do, the decisions you make, the way you think about the world becomes history. So it's not mm-hmm. just the presidents and the congressmen. People are making history. And uh, that's also in part what uh, this young girl is experiencing, trying to understand mm-hmm. uh, and trying mm-hmm. to get justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I so, understand uh, that you're already you're already writing the second book. Is that 
true? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm uh, now totally obsessed with all these little parallels. I forgot to mention uh, homosexuality. It was not invented mm-hmm. in the 20th century, and right. the treatment of, of of gay people and uh, what was legal, what was illegal, how people viewed these things mm-hmm. is also very uh, interesting for things mm-hmm. to change over time. And uh, yes, and so the second one happens five years later in 1888. And there were a lot of interesting things happening then too. It's called Murder mm-hmm. at a Seance. And uh, oh, okay. one of the one of the biggest things happening in the 19th century was a rebirth of religious interest. And it was a mm-hmm. time when many new religions came to life. In fact, I'm pretty sure America has begun more new religions than ever was in Palestine. It, it, really? And... Um, yeah, yeah. So many of the new, Mormonism is the big one, um, but uh, spiritualism is still still going strong, mm-hmm. didn't disappear, mm-hmm. and uh, Seventh-day Adventists and um, Jehovah Witnesses. So um, the, the spiritualism becomes part of uh, the story, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm able to bring in, uh, well, also in the first story, women's rights, because that was becoming an issue. And I found out such interesting things. Um, I did not know, and this plays in the second book, that abortion was looked at as a contraceptive method by the Puritans. Really? Nobody made a big deal about abortion. Yeah, not by the and uh, wow. and and while it's when the Catholics arrived in the church, um, you know there was a glimmer of anti-abortion, but the push, I found out, came from the New American Medical Association, which was of course all men, and they wanted to get the midwives out of the business of medicine. Mm. And so they pursued abortion in a very uh, diligent way, and that was near the end of the uh, of the nineteenth century. Hmm. So these these little things uh, come out in the story. But I think, see, it's the history teacher. I think they're important for people to know. Sure. Well, history is really important. Um, and the, the, the many nuances. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. They, they, I mean, there, there are historians that do wonderful things. I mean, there's a book coming out about Mar Mandelbaum, Rona's work is in it. She used that story for her uh, dissertation, and the story that was written about the making of Central Park. Because nobody knows that if you look at Central Park, it's beautiful. People don't know that there were poor people living there, had a community, mm. had a life, and they had to displace all those people. 
to make a park to make the upper mm-hmm. uh, west side nice right for people. right <laughs> so um you know and all these things affected people's lives in different ways mhm mm-hmm. so that that's that's the fun of the writing um, yeah very interesting um, and you're right, there are a lot of those stories that we don't know about. I mean, I only recently learned about Robert Moses and how he, you know, put the <laughs> highways through people's neighborhoods and right. and purposely right. made purposely made the overpasses on the way out to the beaches on Long Island too low so that buses from the city couldn't go out there. Yeah, yeah, those are, you know, and, and those are the stories that affect the way people live and the way we think about things. Mm-hmm. So it's always mm-hmm. good when that, that information comes out. Sure, sure. And I guess it's and, it's a lot more fun to learn that in a, in a mystery novel. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's it's engaging in a history novel because or in any novel because you see how the people are affected by the things around them and uh, and it's especially good um, Rivka who later changes her name to Rachel is important because she comes in not understanding why certain things are happening. So you get a chance to step way back and see the world through the eyes of somebody who wasn't here before and mm-hmm. doesn't know exactly why certain things happen in the way they happen. Because mm-hmm. when you, li- you live in a, a society, you take for granted certain things and never question, never think about them. But when you go from one place to another, that's notably different. I mean, we're experiencing that in Hawaii, which uh, has a million people scattered on five islands. And Mm. coming from Mm -hmm. a place where there are 10 million people scattered on three islands. Right. Right. So it's, it's... very different experience, and uh, I never knew how many silent behaviors, strictures, etiquette exists among New Yorkers until I came here, where they didn't exist in quite the same way. So mm-hmm. that, that's what uh, Rachel is experiencing. She's young, she, she doesn't understand how this works. And uh, sometimes we here don't understand how it works or doesn't work. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so it's really interesting that you were weaving all of that into a story at the same time as mapping out a mystery, which, you know, I I was interested in writing a mystery at one point in my life until mm-hmm. I bought a book on how to write a mystery and realized oh. that it was probably the most difficult kind of book to write because you have to what know you, the ending before you even start. 
uh, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> you have to read Steve you have to read Stephen King on this because okay. his method is exactly mine. You get a bunch of people, you put them in a situation, and then you see what happens. So you're writing you're writing the the character you have to believe in your characters. So you are creating characters and then they do what they do. I mean, I had a hard time with this story because it's somewhat different from anything that I, the second book, than I had written before. And um, I didn't know, I had no idea uh, who was going to get murdered and uh, how the book was going to end. But as the characters were placed and did certain things, they brought it to the end. And that's Stephen King on writing. I think he wrote a book about it because I've oh, only read okay. quotes from it. But it's uh, it's very good. You can uh, overthink the reality of your book away. Hmm. Okay. So you didn't you didn't have to map out how you were going to drop uh, clues through the book. You just let them no. Kinda... Drop. <laughs> right. And and if by the end of the book, some things were a little off, like this phone call happened too early, then I just go back and in the editing, uh, change it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, and you always have to, when you're writing uh, historical things, you always have to go back and check uh, details and not assume some of the things were the same. Sure. So I'm getting an education in 19th century minutia. <laughs> right. Right. Like you wouldn't have somebody on their cell phone. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's too easy. Yeah. But would you have right. someone lighting like a match? <laughs> mm. Would you have, you know, would somebody say these words or were they another slang for this? So, yeah, there are a lot of little details. And people who are uh, fanatic about this kind of reading, because I've been reading posts by people who read these books, get very distressed when their facts uh, don't come up as they are in history. Right. You know, wording too modern. Yeah, I can see that. Education. Right. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so so what are the other things that you're working on? You said that you're working on a whole bunch of things at the same time. What else are you doing? Yeah. Um, well, uh, some of them are coming through and some aren't. Uh, one of the things that happened was I was thinking about doing a, a te- something on television, and I – made contact with someone who knew more about the technical ends of these things. And it turned out that he belonged to something here called the Hawaii uh, Film Collective. And they were doing a 72-hour challenge that you had to make a three-minute, three- to five-minute movie in um, 72 hours. So um, we got together and created this character who turns out to be a crab, Morty Crustacean. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a very funny little film. 
Um, and uh, we're thinking of extending Morty. And uh, see, and I'm thinking of opening a uh, a channel. So um, we'll see how that comes along. But I'll send wow. you Morty. Uh, he's a Hollywood yeah. uh, producer. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, he's the, the, the uh, filmmaker, the, the, the guy, Roger, who worked with me, is amazing um, and very creative visually. So between the two, uh, pretty wild little three minutes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, are, you, uh, are you writing any plays? Uh, no, but I'm thinking about maybe moving some of the plays into film. Um, I seem to only be able to write in one genre at a time. Uh-huh. Um, although, the, although, you know, the three minutes, that I can do a play script, but if I'm going to do it seriously, I need I need the same level of concentration. So I can spin out something really quick, but it wouldn't be satisfying, uh, you know, unless it was something like the the 72-hour challenge or, you know, real short animated Morty uh, film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, really, uh, I found out too much about uh, book today. It's it's very different. The book market has opened up mm-hmm. tremendously, but being seen becomes a problem. In the olden days, a publisher would publish your book and then take on the responsibility of selling it, and you would get, as a writer, a portion of that, and they would get a portion of it. But that mm-hmm. world is gone. Yep. It doesn't exist. <laughs> I, I can attest to that. That's and, true. Um, and, and, yeah. And um, it, it, um, it makes it very difficult to get um, work even though there are billions of people in, that seem interested mm-hmm. in seeing the work. So uh, right. almost all the do-it-yourself project in mm-hmm. terms of getting people to know about the book. And um, I, w- I was, have to say I was surprised by that. Well, there it seems to me that there are pros and cons to it. So the mm. you know, the negative side is that it's really hard to get the book out there and you know, there are so many other books that how do you get people to look at yours? But mm-hmm. on the positive side, it opens the door to so many people who wouldn't otherwise have their book published. Like it was a very difficult that one, it was very difficult at one time when you had to do the traditional way to right. have your book have your book published as a first time author. So it was kind of like a catch twenty two because how do you mm-hmm. how do you be how how do you become an author who has already had a published book if nobody's going to publish you the first time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you you summed it up uh, perfectly. Um, yeah, but it is tiring. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm not not so much that I'm doing anything, but I'm getting endless things I can pay for that I have no interest in paying for. Right. Um, right. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, uh, you know, being an older person, uh, the process is really 99% of uh, the satisfaction. Because I, mm-hmm. I present the work as best I can present it, and I hope people like it. It's different in theater. What I used to do is I would, uh, if one of my plays was up, I'd go out, I'd see it one time, then I'd go out, and I'd listen to the audience's reaction. And when the audience started laughing where they were supposed to laugh, that was the uh, the perfect time. And then I could go home and uh, and not think uh-huh. about it because somebody saw what I was doing. Um, and um, so, you know, at uh, the, the same important part uh, that, people feel passionately about it. 25. Once you learn the dance, uh, you either do it because you love it or you don't do it. Um, I mean, some people get picked up. You know, I did this um, arts festival for 13 years, still going mm-hmm. on in New York. Uh, and many, many young artists uh, on all me- different ways, all uh, genres, um, came before us. And they were all very talented. And some got some fame, some got some fortune, but the majority moved along in either uh, doing it on a uh, less grand level than what they wanted or imagined, um, and um, and some just moved along to something else, no matter mm-hmm. how talented. Mhm, mhm. There's there's not big. So you have to really love art. it. You have to mm-hmm. do it because you love it, right? Right, right. And um, my father had been an actor as a young man, very young. And when he was offered a contract to Hollywood, his parents wouldn't let him go. Um, Mm -hmm. But he continued working in vaudeville. And then, of course, television wiped out vaudeville. And uh, he got a regular job. But all his life, he talked about how he missed doing the thing that he loved. Mm-hmm. and how much he wanted to be around it. So I don't think anybody should give up the thing they love. Yeah. Uh, just find, find a way. And you're living testament to that. You're doing what you love. Yeah, yeah. Like, like so, uh, I, yeah. No, no, go on. No, I was going to say, like I told my grandson, that uh, I, I don't feel like I worked except one week when I had to do something I didn't want to do uh, uh-huh. in in my life, and uh, I 
I feel sad for people who work in places that don't make them happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always mm-hmm. aggravation. Don't, I mean, I taught in uh, the most difficult schools uh, in Brooklyn and Queens, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of angst, but I was just still doing some the job that I wanted to do. Right, right. So, so Carol, if uh, how can people find your book if they're or your series of books if they're interested in reading them, and how can they find out more about you and what you're doing and your other projects? Oh, okay. Um, for the books, right now, A Murder on Allen Street is on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Google Talk. And I, yeah, the uh, iTunes, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, as for me, um, I have a website, and with luck, I'll get it right, um, (laughs) which is... Uh, my last name, see, my last name is difficult, but it's um, books by cp.com. Books by cp.com? All right. And if anybody okay. can spell my name and put the number 18 after it, uh, they can reach me at Gmail. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to post all of that. <laughs> On my okay. website post, so so people can see that um, if they go to my website later tonight uh, or tomorrow morning, anytime after tonight, and they'll be able to find all of that right there. Oh, great. Okay. So thank you okay. so much, Carol, for being on the program and telling us about what you're doing and inspiring us to follow our passion. Um, well, you know, you really are doing that. Thank you. And, uh, yes, go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care now and enjoy your time there in paradise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Have a good evening. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Dr. Mara's book, The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age, is now available on Kindle and in paperback at Amazon. Don't forget to listen to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years live from Austin, Texas, every Sunday on blogtalkradio.com. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. All right, and we are back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpel and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpel.com. And over the last few months, I've been talking about um, directing our passion toward advocating for our elder our elders for those people who are caregivers 
for older adults um, or working in working with older adults in any way. Um, and so this evening, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish off that series and maybe start with something new next time. But I wanted to finish off this way because um, you know after um, having worked in nursing homes and other long term care communities like assisted living and even um, going into people's homes who had home health. Um, between the graduate school in the late 80s and throughout the 90s and the early 2000s and 2000s and I witnessed what I you know what I would call ageism in long-term care and even in medical care when the doctors interacted with the with the residents of long-term care when they came in I witnessed quite a bit of um, an ageist attitude. Um, and then I got away from that for a while, working in a private practice and then doing what I currently do, getting into doing what I currently do, which is working with veterans. I sort of got away from that community, um, even though that it has remained my passion. Um, and then when my parents got older and I started um, seeing some of the situations that they were in and and the reactions from the medical community to my aging parents and even recently to my mom, who is 94, I realized that ageism in the medical community has not gone anywhere. You would think that over the years that it would change. Um, and... There were some really extreme situations, and I've written some blogs about it. I've spoken about it here um, with my father, then more recently with my mother, that I felt still couldn't believe that that was something that was across the board, and I felt that these were isolated incidents. In fact, in, you know, in one case, a couple, two years ago, I reported it to the health department reported the doctor um, because I thought that he was acting uniquely um, with poor um, professional and medical um, care. And then my mom moved, moved to a different state and similar similar things have happened with doctors. Not all of the doctors that she's come in contact with, but with those doctors who are really the gatekeepers who decide uh, whether she sees a specialist or not um, and that sort of thing. I saw that the situations that I thought were unique were not, that they were happening across the board. And I spoke with other family member, family members of residents in the long-term care community where my mom lives through the family council that we have, and they have told me stories that were would seem to be unbelievable, um, but they're real. And so I did a deep dive into the research. Has there been research about this? 
on ageism and healthcare. Um, I really, really wanted to know if these are anecdotal stories um, that some families face, or is there research showing a significant and real issue that is happening across the country? Um, and that's when I came across the journal article by Dr. Phoebe Williams, who was the associate professor of law at Marquette University. I believe that she's now retired. But the article came out in 2011 and really seems to be um, relevant to the issues that we've seen more recently, um, myself and other family members from Family Council with our loved ones. And the article is called Age Discrimination in the Delivery of Healthcare Services to Our Elders. And in her article, Dr. Williams tells us that the research, and there has been research on this very issue, has found that the use of advanced chronological age as the determinative factor, so a person's advanced age being used as the decision maker by physicians to deny or limit medical treatment um, is really happening. And that studies have found that physicians do consider a patient's advanced age when decide, deciding the type and the level of healthcare services that they receive. While at the same time, the use of advanced age is not always medically appropriate. So it has become common for doctors to say, well, you know, they're already 80, they're already 90, you know, so we're not going to do anything more. And for families to say, yeah, that makes sense, when actually it's not always um it's not always medically appropriate to make decisions that way. And in fact, it's not always the person, the the older patient's desire to not have treatment because they're because they're old. Um we can't paint all elderly people with such a broad brush. People have different desires and wishes, and we are supposed to abide by their wishes. Um, and in fact, Dr. Williams, who was a professor of law, um, saw this treatment in direct violation of the Age Discrimination Act of 1975 which is a federal law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of age. And this law usually has been applied to employment, but it also covers health care, although she said that most people don't know it and don't actually litigate based on um, the Age Act related to health care. Um, researchers Janigan and Binstock wrote in their article, Economic and Clinical Realities, Healthcare for the Elderly, um, that there have traditionally been three clinical objectives in Western medicine. 
Number one is to cure where possible. Number two is to comfort when appropriate. And number three is to care always. And when cure is not possible, treatment or rehabilitation may be offered to prevent further development of illness. And when illness cannot be treated and the patient is dying, then palliative medications and therapies are offered as well as hospice care. However, as is noted in Williams' article, many doctors quickly jump to the conclusion that cure or treatment to prevent further progression isn't possible and would be too difficult for the patient because of their age. Um, And they jump right to palliative or hospice care. They don't even look at the options for curative treatment or treatment to prevent progression. They jump right to comfort and dying. And that's not always accurate or appropriate. Um, As Williams wrote, the age stereotyping that occurs in healthcare settings may also include assumptions by healthcare providers that elderly individuals will not benefit from certain healthcare procedures or that elderly individuals do not want certain treatments. Elderly patients may be stereotyped based on um, empirically verified information or they may be stereotyped based on spurious information emanating from misconceptions and ignorance. So they are stereotyped that they cannot benefit from treatment and that they don't want treatment, even though that that does not fit for everyone who is at the same age. Um, In the article, Ageism in Cardiology, Um, The researcher Ann Bowling wrote, ageism in medicine may be partly a consequence of lack of awareness of the evidence-based literature on treatment of older people. And this particular um, lack of awareness is made worse by the severe underrepresentation of older people in clinical trials of treatment with researchers tending to have age limits on their study participants in order to make the research easier. Um, Because when you have more older people, you have more confounding variables such as other medical issues. And so um, to make the research easier, researchers just don't uh, use older participants. And so we don't have the the research to show whether the treatments will work on an older person. We don't have as much research. Um, and Bowling concludes in her, in her article that the collective consequences of these biases, whatever their causes, is that, are that older people may not be treated equitably when it comes to allocating healthcare resources. And while the belief is that money and resources are conserved by not treating older people with newer treatments, um, we tend to see that a lot, that um, doctors 
and hospitals tend to think it's a waste of resources to spend money and time on an older person with new treatments. Um, the fact is that um, denying older people the benefit of certain interventions has been found to lead to greater spending on maintenance services such as nursing homes and home health care while providing more invasive treatments or more intensive treatments could be cost effective if they enable people to function independently for a longer period of time. So you're not really saving money um, by withholding treatment because of a person's age. So another assumption for the age bias in medical decisions by physicians is that the assumption that older patients don't want certain forms of medical interventions. And the study, um, studies found um, by A.T. Elder found that older patients will accept more invasive interventions if it's recommended to them by their doctors. So it's been, it was found in another study that older patients have indicated that the primary determinant of their decisions regarding chemotherapy, for example, is their physician's advice. So if a person, an older person, is advised by their doctor that the treatment would not be beneficial for them, they're more likely to turn it down. While um, if their doctor has a more optimistic attitude about treatment, the, the elderly patient is more likely to try the treatment. So I am going to finish this with two suggestions. One is actually a plea to medical providers to investigate your own biases, including but not limited to the age biases, uh, because of course we know that there are other vast disparities in healthcare when we look at gender, sexual orientation, race, and ethnicity. Um, but it's really important that the assumptions and decisions made by healthcare practitioners determined by the age of the patient um, be looked at because they are not always correct and they are not always appropriate um, and they're not always the best medical care. And I recommend to any caregivers listening to this that you strongly advocate for your loved one, and I've talked about this before, even if the response by the medical doctor is one that is annoyed with you, um, they feel like their toes are being stepped on, their authority is being challenged. It's really important to challenge and do your research, do your homework, look at journal articles, look at what, re what treatments are out there 
um, that do have good results with older adults um, with the health issues that your loved one might be dealing with. And of course, know what the wishes are of your loved one. Do they want a treatment or are they feeling like they just want to be made comfortable? That's really important to know. And remember that older adults are not a homogenous group. They have different um, desires, different wishes, and they are not all um, unable to handle more cutting-edge treatments. So I'm going to end on that note. And let me know, let me let you know what's coming up next time. So next Sunday, October the 8th, we'll be back live with Robert Sigdor, president of Thrive Pavilion, a nonprofit senior community that is based entirely in virtual reality. Um, Two weeks ago, we had a member of that community join us to talk about her experience, and this time the president of Thrive will be with us to talk about the origins of the community and the social, emotional, and health benefits that can come from this virtual reality community. And if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from the show, get the website links that we talked about, go to my website. All of that will be posted later tonight at drmaricarpel.com. You can also hear this evening's program in as soon as five minutes from now by going directly to blog talk radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden ears. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts in five minutes from now. Be sure to follow me on Facebook for upcoming events, drmaricarpel.com. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. Thank you to my guest, Carol Pogovar, and thank you to Art. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any information on this program.